This is Deacon Allen. Some years ago, I gave a talk, uh, a lecture series actually, at the Cathedral of St. Paul on the Catholicism of Gerard Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And it occurred to me that, you know, in this time of social isolation, when we're not able to be together and meet up in coffee hour and talk about whatever things are of interest to us, it might be fun to give sort of a short praises of that uh four-part lecture series in a, a few short little kind of podcast moments here. I had broken it down into four topics. The first was more general, uh, introduction to J.R.R. Tolkien and his whole uh, um, myth creation, uh, creation of his world and its languages, the depth and so forth, and also about his with his deep Catholicism that really informed his work. And then moving on, the second in the series was about Christ figures that occur in The Lord of the Rings and with some reference to other places in his writings. The third was on Marian figures in The Lord of the Rings and again with some reference to other uh, uh, passages in Tolkien's writings. And then the fourth one that kind of wrapped it all up was about the general uh, moral uh, worldview and picture uh, of Tolkien's writings. It makes sense of how the characters act and think. Um, and I want to stress right at the outset the very Catholic nature of Tolkien's writings. And he was explicit about that in one of his letters that he wrote uh, to a, a priest um, named... Uh, named uh, Father uh, Robert Murray, who was a Jesuit, he wrote this letter in 1953. He said, The Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. Unconsciously so at first, but consciously in the revision. Now, when you look at The Lord of the Rings, you would think, well, well if it's such a religious work, uh, where's the religion? Because there is no cultus, a Latin word for, you know, uh, formal worship. Uh, there's no cultus, no sacrifices offered. Uh, there are no prayers, except, I suppose, the elves singing that hymn to Elbereth uh, that comes up uh, when, the, when the hobbits in The Lord of the Rings uh, first come across the elves in the Shire. Um, and then there's also that moment of silence. It's almost like a table grace, uh, by Faramir and his men, uh, before dinner. Um, but other than that, there's, there's no religious practice. So where's the religion? If it is, as Tolkien says, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. Well, uh, to answer this question, I wanted to point out in Tolkien's writings where he accounts for this, including, in particular, the two sentences that immediately follow what I just read from that letter to Father Murray. Remember, Tolkien had said that the Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously so at first, but consciously in the revision. And then he goes on to say, that is why I have not put in or have cut out practically all references to anything like religion, to cults or practices in the imaginary world. For the religious element is absorbed into the story and the symbolism. 
And that's really going to be what is uh, the driving uh, um, consideration that we're going to be looking at in the next uh, uh, couple or three uh, of these short talks. The religion is really, it's not, doesn't need to be put you know, up front in the story, which might scare off some readers, but it's actually absorbed into it. That's why it's such a deeply moral book uh, to read. Uh, and and also so very real because it has a basis in fundamental moral reality. Um, and so with you know we've talked about what the next three lectures that I gave and we'll be summarizing here are about, but I wanted to focus you know on Tolkien himself, brief biographical detail about this man. He was born in South Africa uh, you know in the late nineteenth century, the height of the British Empire. His father was a bank manager in Bloemfontein, South Africa um, but uh uh, Tolkien doesn't didn't really have much of a memory of his time in South Africa. A few uh, uh, episodic, you know, events because he was uh, a very young boy when he moved back to England. Um, his uh, father was wrapping up the business, uh, his business in in that uh, bank in South Africa, and Tolkien and his mother and his baby brother uh, went back to England. But in the six months or so that they were expecting his father, Arthur, to wrap up his work, uh, unfortunately, his father uh, fell sick and died. And so here's Tolkien, uh, away from his father, in England, uh, with just his mother and his mother, a young widow. Um, his mother and father, of course, had... had been Protestants, and Tolkien was was uh, um, baptized as a Protestant. But his mother began to explore the Catholic faith, and she uh, became a Catholic when Tolkien was a small boy, and he and his brother were also then received into the Catholic Church and received a Catholic education. This really cut her off from her family. Her family uh, had deeply anti-Catholic prejudices, and about this time, too, his mother developed what we now would call type 1 diabetes, which until the uh, uh, modern medicine uh, some decades later had uh, developed insulin treatment where we could you know, actually isolate insulin and do injections was really a death sentence uh, for someone. She was still quite young. She got very ill um, and, and she died. And she left Tolkien and his brother Hillary uh, in the care of a guardian, a priest, uh, um, and uh, and so he was he was raised uh, in uh, a religious setting, uh, going to a boarding school uh, uh, in uh, the uh, the Birmingham Oratory, um, and. Uh, uh, that was very instructive for him. He regarded his mother as something of a martyr for her faith because she had been so uh, shunned by her family. He felt like that, uh, you know, participated in some way in her death, although given the 
state of medicine at that time and type 1 diabetes, that's probably unfair to his relatives. And to their credit, they did, uh, you know, step in and pay for his uh, private school education um, and and so forth. He went up to Oxford and began studying. You know, one thing that his mother, his mother must have been a remarkable woman because she taught him a love of language. He learned French and German and, and, uh, and Latin and Greek from her. Um, and then that was then continued on in his schooling. And he fell very early in love with language itself. That kind of got him into a little bit of trouble when he was up at Oxford, uh, because while he was supposed to be studying uh, in his course of study, he got sidetracked and started learning ancient Gothic um, and, uh, uh, and Finnish, um, because he had discovered the great Finnish epic, the Kalevala, and just he he never mastered Finnish, but he he loved the way the the sounds worked, and so he began what he later wrote an essay called a secret vice. He began this secret vice of constructing languages, and he began by uh, inventing a language that was phonetically based loosely on Finnish sounds, and then another one that was based roughly phonetically on Welsh sounds, although the words don't have anything, or the grammar don't have anything to do with those other languages. Um, and that was really the germ of his writing, that it was the language first, because as he started developing the language, he got to thinking, what kind of people would have spoken this language, and what kind of stories would they have told? Um, about this time, too, also, he had very much discovered and, and fallen in love with the old English, uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon language uh, that was uh, spoken before the Norman Conquest in 1066, when the uh, Norman French came over and became the overlords, in our, and English was changed dramatically from that point on. And in particular, the dialect of Mercia, which was the area of the West Midlands where he lived as a boy. Um, and uh, it was in the course of, of reading, uh, you know, in Anglo-Saxon, which he, he was one of the, the uh, during his lifetime, he was one of the world's experts in, in this language, and particularly in its great epic Beowulf. But he came across a couple of lines in a medieval poem about John the Baptist uh, called Christ, uh, in which it says, and I'm going to butcher this, I am sure, because I do not speak Anglo-Saxon, but it says, E alla erendel engla beortast, offer middenherd monum sended, which means, hail e arendel, uh, angel brightest, over middle earth, which just means the world of men, over Middle-earth sent to men. And that got him thinking, Earendel, it just it was a beautiful word. And and so he started uh, coming up with, and it worked out actually, the, 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 uh, the word, which is Anglo-Saxon, uh, actually fit uh, one of these languages that he was himself inventing. And so it became a a character uh, of of his stories, and so he started thinking, what kind of story would this Arundel have been a been involved in? And and from there began the germ of what became the Silmarillion, which is really the big backdrop to the Lord of the Rings. Um, 
Another aspect of Tolkien that I think is really important to understand him is his notion of the artist as a sub-creator. Very strong, remember, he's very Catholic, and so the notion of God is, creates out of nothing, but he made us in his image. And what do we do? We create as well. Um, we can't make it something out of nothing, but we can sub-create. We can make uh, worlds, uh, characters, stories, uh, art that is more or less real, uh, depending on our skill, but all of it is is participating in the spark of the divine that is in us because we are made in the divine image and likeness. And one of his stories that he wrote is an allegory called Leaf by Niggle. And there's a, a painter named Niggle, which, you know, is a wonderful name because it's, you know, niggling is to, you know, be overly fastidious and, you know, uh, focusing on little tiny points of detail. And Niggle is constantly trying to paint this tree and he's making everything so detailed that he can never finish the painting, okay? And in a way, that's sort of what, you know, an allegory for Tolkien himself, because he was a notorious perfectionist. He was constantly rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and niggling away at his work in such a way that, it, you know, almost despair of ever finishing anything. One of his great friends, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, another great Christian writer, the two of them were, were both uh, 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 Oxford Dons, uh, you know, teachers at, at Oxford, and uh, they would gather in a group called the Inklings uh, at a pub, uh, uh, usually at the uh, the, the uh, Eagle and Childers, they call it the Bird and Baby in England, in, in, in Oxford, but then also in Lewis's rooms, and they would read each other their writings. There were other members of the group as well. Um, and at one point, Tolkien and Lewis had both worked complaining that nobody was writing the sorts of science fiction books that they wanted to read. Science fiction and fantasy is what we would call it now. And so Lewis, uh, they made an agreement that Lewis would write the the, uh, the space travel story, and uh, and Tolkien then would uh, would write the time travel story. Well, of course, Tol uh, Lewis just bashed out uh, out of the silent planet and its successors uh, uh, very quick, you know, in short order there, in just a few years after that. Uh, Tolkien started on a book called the Lost Road, got sidetracked, never finished it, picked it up again some years later, uh, reworking it as the Notion Club papers, got sidetracked on that by actually inventing a new language. Um, so Tolkien was constantly uh, tinkering with his work. Um, so Leaf by Niggle is, is a great allegory for him because he's constantly working and working and working. But what that shows is, unlike a great many other authors, Tolkien's work always impresses us with a great deal of depth. And part of that is because the depth really is there. He really did go into the backstories. There are volumes and volumes and volumes of drafts and, and uh, backstory developing the whole uh, world. You've got these languages that are practically, uh, well, I mean, they're not complete, complete, but I mean, uh, that, that you have whole dictionaries and grammars and, and history of how they develop with root words and, and, and so forth. It just, it's an amazing amount of depth behind it all. Um, that, that is unparalleled by other authors of, of, of science fiction and fantasy, uh, even the best. Um, I mean, all it takes is to compare, again, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and the depth of its world uh, to his friend C.S. Lewis's Narnia stories. Uh, there's just almost no comparison. Um, 
in terms of the depth and reality that you sense of reality that you get from Tolkien's writings. And that, you know, brings me to, again, that sense that he was always rewriting and rewriting and reworking. When he composed The Lord of the Rings, his son, uh, Tolkien's son, Christopher, is his literary executor who just recently died. Um, and, and, and Christopher Tolkien had published a 12-volume series called The History of Middle-Earth that is really shows all the early drafts and all the development of things. When you look at the early drafts of The Lord of the Rings and how Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings... It started out to be a sequel to The Hobbit, which was a children's story and was quite popular. And Tolkien started writing another lighthearted story similar to The Hobbit with no idea where it was going. And he would go a certain amount and then he would hit a snag. And so what Tolkien would do is just start all over again. And so it's almost I, the image I have in my head is like waves coming up the beach as the tide is coming in. Each wave comes up just a little bit further. You know, he would get a little bit further in the story and then he'd go back and rewrite. So that first chapter of The Lord of the Rings, he rewrote six, seven times um, completely. And and a lot of times the the uh, the story deepened as it went. So that stuff that even though some of the dialogue is word for word identical in the published version to what it is in the first drafts, the whole character of it has changed. Um, uh, it's remarkable to to look into all that depth and, and everything. I'm glad that, you know, this. he was writing in an era where, uh, you know, you're writing with pencil and pen on paper and then type having it typed up uh, um, because we have all those drafts. I suppose if we, you know, writers now writing on a on a computer, you know, you just hit delete <laughs> and it's gone. But we, they have, he, we have all of this depth of information that he was working on. So the story of the Lord of the Rings, unlike the Hobbit, which, you know, came out with, you know, he wrote that in a few years, uh, with a few stops, but it went fairly quickly. The Lord of the Rings, he was constantly working on over the course of, oh, you know, almost 20 years as he was working it. And it gradually got longer and longer and deeper and deeper and, uh, much broader in its composition. Um, so we're going to be exploring the depths then of the Lord of the Rings. There's just so much more to talk about this. Uh, like I say, I gave an entire lecture on just this topic alone uh, some years ago. There are great books to read on this, but we'll let this stand for now as, as uh, what I've got to say as an introduction to this lecture series. Back with more in the next one.